Welcome to Timely Meditations, Thoughts from a Harvard Dorm. I'm Jose Espinel, a third-year undergrad at Harvard College, and I'm one of the co-hosts on our podcast. Every week, we invite friends with interesting opinions to debate big-picture ideas related to philosophy, politics, history, and economics. That's going to, I mean, do you think this dominance is going to last though? And if so, for how long do you think it's going to last? I mean, Harvard's had a pretty good track record. (laughs) I mean, I mean to last, well, well, let me actually put that in context. I think I don't want to make too much light of the question because it's been around for 400 years. It has not been Harvard as we know it for 400 years. Um, I feel like that's a little bit more recent than we'd like to acknowledge, not just where the because we're not just talking about its importance in America, we're talking about how it got the global significance. So and this goes back to your point, interesting, about how I think it's similar to America in a lot of ways. I think the story of Harvard is uh, inseparable from the, the story of America, particularly um, the modern history where it's like, okay, Harvard happened to be the best American educational institution at the time when America became the most powerful country in the world when we were spreading our culture, our ideas, our everything, basically, to every other t- to every other part of the world. So I feel like that impact basically had Britain been in our place, like in the 80s and 90s, honestly, even you can even go into the 70s, I feel like Oxford would probably have had the reputation that Harvard has now, and Harvard would be like, at best, like a second rate player in that way. But I feel that since all the attention and money and focus and people um, went to the United States at that period, and Harvard was at the top of that period, man, they just used that to really catapult themselves like internationally. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't even mean it internationally as a cultural export, right? Because I think you, you can't <laughs> deny that the ability to export Harvard as the top institution is intrinsically tied to America's ability pr- to project power. To be seen as a entirely You cannot separate those two things. Of course. But, but I think the, the more interesting question is to ask ourselves, what is Harvard's position going to be in higher education in the United States, in the United States, domestically, a hundred years from today? Because what is, what is the point of Harvard now? What do we export domestically? What do we create? Well, I think a symbol. It's a, a symbol, exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's a symbol in a way that to a lot of people, to the vast majority of the country, I think, it, it's become like it, it has this, this mysteriousness, this ideal uh, that's similar to, I think, the authority, the legitimacy of, of political leaders, uh, of rulers in the past. I think, I think it's critical that, 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 that the population buy into this, this sense of authority, this sense of... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, that, that's, that's actually a great point that you bring up because it's something that I noticed. I said, I think you need mystique in order to convey power and authority. I feel like, I mean, look, within a society, I feel like once you, you need to basically create enough distance so that the people that you're trying to exert authority over feel sort of that awe and intimidation for you. And I feel like to a large extent, that's been the problem in our political system in becoming more democratic and open to the public. The people who are vanguards of that political authority basically started to lose esteem in our eyes. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, like, so like, because, because people talk about, for instance, I'll also make one, this, yeah, this one yeah. point. So people talk about they're surprised, like, okay, Congress's approval ratings are basically the lowest that they've ever been in our history, yet people have a very high degree of respect for these authoritarian institutions, basically, like the military, the court, 
sports. It's like because these things are so far removed from people's okay, lives but, but that it's like, oh yeah, like I, I do. I do want to make a point that yeah. I think, like, it also matters, right? That people care about what that symbol means and that it satisfies something psychologically, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I distance, I think, matters, right? Distance is important, and distance creates mystique, and I think that does legitimize authority. Right, I wouldn't argue that, uh, but I think that also works in the other way. There's historical examples that show that a separation between the people and the rulers, even if it creates mystique, can cause problems. Oh, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you if you when you talk to the if you talk to the Russian czar, you um, know he isn't around today. But if he was, like, he'd probably tell you. But that, like, uh, but that like, didn't but work like out most things, but like most things, they exist on a spectrum. Too much distance, you're out of touch, and right. you're susceptible. So you're susceptible to destroying your own regime. Too little distance, and you can't maintain your regime anyway. Right. You don't, what what I'm saying is, that it's not only a distance problem, but there's another problem, mm-hmm. right? That, and that's what I'm getting at when I ask: Is Harvard going to be around? The question that I wonder is: Are people going to be receptive to that symbol? Is the Harvard symbol is the Harvard symbol going to satisfy the same things that it satisfies today? Yeah, and are we yeah, going to I value think, those I think things? Yes, at the same because level? people. For for two things, I think people like simplicity, one, and people, and I think th- there's numerous research about that, and people like a sense of something something to look forward to, something something to admire, right? And I think Harvard, as you mentioned, uh, like has this sense that that people admire to has I think a good balance of distance that mm-hmm. people really admire it. But that being said. I think people also like the simplicity of when they think about something to, to to strive for. When they think about the best, they don't they don't want to think about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Columbia. They, like the, for the vast majority of people uh, who actually are responsible for that cultural perception, they just they just want to have one thing that they look at, and it's easy to say Harvard's the best. Period. That's the end of story. Moving on. That's all they need to to really know about the matter, right? Uh, since they're so far detached to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that that mirrors our perception as as, as students. I think uh, you 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 meet someone, and a lot of times, especially if they don't really have a close connection to Harvard, you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Lucas. Whatever. Nice to meet you. Uh, and great, all, all goes well. But then somehow, if Harvard makes its way into the conversation, a lot of times you have those situations where, like, oh yeah, I go to Harvard, and all of a sudden there's there's like a third eyeball has appeared in the middle of your forehead. You've grown a fifth arm protruding out of out of your chest, you you now become this sort of alien, alienated species where uh, they just they really don't know how how to handle it because I think for a lot of people it has that that distance, Jason, that you're talking about where mm-hmm. you just really don't know what to expect, um, and I think that's partly responsible for uh, and and a result of Harvard's Harvard's I think uh, pop culture perception. I like how Lucas said a fifth arm as if he has uh, a four before we go with. Um, no, I was going to say just a few points on this. First off, Jason's political cynicism uh, comment. Second, Oxford, and third, Harvard. Uh, first, with the with the, the national debate champion, by the way. No, there we go. Oh, here we go. As usual, I'm going to forget the last one and then send me two points anyway. But uh, I was watch listening to this podcast at the gym um, because I'm a narcissist. A few days ago, uh, the first one, and I was we we're talking about cynicism and mysticism a lot. And I think it's important to note that uh, I, I was talking to Jason. I said, without mysticism, there's cynicism. Uh, mm-hmm. Was my was my uh, witty phrase, and, and it, I think it's true. To Jose's point. 
point, it is a spectrum, right? If you're too out of touch, like Zara Nicholas. It's Jason's point. Oh, so, I, I don't want to be narcissistic. You know, all those J's are the same. Um, <laughs> no, and so to Jason's point, right? If you're the Zara Nicholas II, you're too detached. But if you're too, if you're, I don't want to say Alexandria or, or to, uh, Ocasio Andrew Cortez, Jackson. Andrew Jackson, you're too much, right? There is a fine line, but I think it's important to note that that in this fine line, uh, you know, leaders have to have to straddle it. Yes. Um, but at the same time, they, they don't necessarily have to distance themselves to an appropriate degree. And I guess in terms of Oxford, Harvard, there is a sense that, yes, it's easy. They're number one. They're going to be the best. Um, but it is for simplistic purposes that I think Harvard and Oxford also encapsulates Cambridge and Stanford and Princeton. People already know that. Um, but to Oxford's point, I don't think uh, that Harvard became better when America got better. I just think as America developed, so did Harvard, and that they became a major institution as well. And that Oxford and Cambridge, I still believe, are probably the top two schools in the world. Maybe Harvard's third, Princeton, we can argue about that. Um, but they also offer completely different things. To the Harvard point, um, yeah, it's been around for, what, almost 400 years now, 375 years. I do believe that Harvard will still be number one or in that vicinity uh, 200 years from now, uh, mainly because I, of course, want my kids to go here and have that, that same you know level. Um, but at the same time, I think that when you're number one, it is far harder to fall from the top spot than it is when you're number six or seven or, or whatever. Um, I was talking to Jason about oil companies a few days ago at dinner, and we were saying that, you know, Exxon, Chevron, I believe, Texaco, Shell, all these big companies, they're not going to get bought out and diminished because of green energy. They're going to buy into green energy and then become the number one green energy companies. They're not going anywhere. And I don't, I think it's, it's Ronnie said Harvard isn't going anywhere either because, as we said before, it's conservative. Uh, it watches trends in higher education. It sees what works, what doesn't work. Oh, do we need a business school? Do we need an engineering school? And then when it watches all the other smaller schools or, or other schools. It dumps the largest endowment yeah. in the world. It says, okay, we'll, we'll buy ourselves a business school and we'll have the best one. So I think those that are at the top have a far easier time sustaining their growth. And I think Harvard's I think, conservative policies allow them to do that. And I think it's exactly because, I think, to, to your own quote, yeah. because you want your kids, yeah. people like you They're want invested. your kids to yeah, come yeah. back here. And that's exactly why. We keep it alive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you, and I think and I think to your point where I think where Harvard's going to be in 200 years and how hard it is to fall from the top. I think especially for an institution like Harvard that has this stepwise change yeah. between number one and number two, three, four, five, six, that makes it so much easier. I think number like if you look at like two through like tenth in the rankings, yeah. I think that's going to be way more volatile yeah. than say a Harvard, especially in the public perception, if not for sheer quality of education. But of course, everything at number one falls sometimes. I mean, do we think we become the General Electric of colleges where we're the number one uh, poor General Electric? We're the number one you know company field, whatever you want to call it, for you know a sustained period of time, and then something happens to us, like it happened to GM. There's a crisis, maybe higher education that knocks down the spot and what does that crisis look like i don't really know per se but i could think to jason's point maybe it's to the degree of it's the degree of um you know let's say we're just exporting you know diplomas with the harvard name on it and and career jobs instead of actual intellectual stimulation so people think well heck that's seventy thousand i just spent got me a nice job but i'm not any smarter than i was when i walked in here or 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 stanford continue continues its meteoric rise and the focus on tech eventually just make uh, renders harvard and harvard's reputation obsolete or just so bad weather. I, I think to yeah. what we talked about before is I think a flood that, in the northeast. I think you you guys have convinced Climate me to a certain point. By that the time the that symbol won't change, right? The symbols and they're important uh, to the general population won't change, right? But Stanford could have a better political science department. 
And they and, do currently. I mean, Hoover Institution is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's improving. And I think that uh, once they start beating out Harvard and they start becoming more well-rounded, I think that that uh, position might change. And I think I think that's similar to this the the idea of historical uniqueness. How I think you talk to a lot of people, it's 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 unfathomable that the United States isn't a world leader, isn't like the center of attention on the global stage. But I think that like that perception. Do you think anyone in the Roman Empire? at its peak, mm. thought that the, what the world would look like without the Roman Empire. That same thought exercise can be applied to every empire in history, where I think at its peak, it's, it's pretty much impossible to imagine a world without X. But uh, as history has shown, I think that that absolutely does happen. Um, and I don't know what that looks like, uh, what a scenario would look like without the United States. I don't know what would cause such a scenario. I think there's a number of things that absolutely could uh, and I don't know when it might happen, but I think to say that, oh, this time is different because of X, Y, Z reasons. It's never different. It's it's never different. I don't I don't think it is. Oh, it's not different. It's just a matter of when. And then, obviously, how the historians will wonder. And why, in the end. But, yeah. But we know, we will know why. We just won't know when. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also a larger question, then, of what do we want out of a higher institution? And now we keep on, I think, Jason... Go back to his earlier point. Said Harvard is only producing kind of jobs somewhat. I think it's also important to note that a lot of colleges, the majority of colleges, do just that. Intellectual stimulation really isn't Especially in, in, Stanford, in the key. They're just the definition of jobs. I'll call them meat grinder schools for the purpose mm-hmm. of this, with no disrespect or any uh, negative connotation. But there are tons of schools, trade schools, community colleges, um, obviously, of course, law schools, business schools, nursing schools that produce you for a job. And so there is no intellectual stimulation. I mean, my sister right now is going through the college process, and I suggested a liberal arts degree. And my mom said, you know, are you crazy? Uh, you know, what is she going to do with a history degree like you? And I said, study history. Um, but, but I think there was some point that in America we are very career oriented and that potentially that lack of intellectual stimulation in the post-secondary environment could also just be hurting ourselves as, as Renaissance men and women and also just bettering our nation as leaders and, and philosophers but instead I, of just kind of rote, you know, professional career But paths. I get it now, actually. The reason why we can't be Renaissance men is that the Renaissance was a very long time ago. Yeah. Now in the whole... What? Yeah, no, but, no, but, but obviously I say, say that for facetiously but it's but the idea is that like when you read about like all these like early political or early modern political philosophers um you know that were writing like late 19th century early 20th century it's incredible how prescient they were in predicting like how this massive increase in industrialization and standardization and bureaucratization like max weber like amongst all of them was going to fundamentally change the way that humans interact with their society mm-hmm. it's not about just studying under the sun and reading plato and aristotle anymore now it's like in order to manage the machinery the bureaucratic machinery and government um, and in business, particularly even in higher education, everything just becomes so mechanized and rote. You, you basically just become a society that trains technocrats, essentially, just like all the people who will populate and run these institutions, these consulting firms, these investment banks, these faceless, large, gigantic organizations. I mean, that's why people are like fearful of monopolies and uh, just concentrated large business power and the overall mechanization of society that process represented. It really does scare people and like, I feel like we are still struggling to live in. I think a lot of the, when they talk about America and China, all these things, the fundamental problem is we don't yet know how to live in industrial modern society. We still don't get it. The change happened so fast and it was so different from everything that came before. Yeah. I mean, these were these were these were seismic shock waves that were running over society. I mean, 
the death of God as one of them, leaving rural life and going to these big, large, anonymous cities, you know, doing a little piece of a long chain of labor rather than being involved in your labor from start to finish. There were just so many changes in the day-to-day of people's lives that we don't even know how that's changed individual human psychology, social relations. I mean... Politics. Well, here's a no, question for you, no Jason. I, I just c- c- because yeah. you can talk about people and leaders have become as we become more mechanized and more industrialized, we've lost some of that Renaissance element. But I'm thinking, you know, Abraham Lincoln could recite Shakespeare um, by memory. You know, 150 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Donald Trump can recite mm-hmm. a Shakespeare quote, I and mean, maybe it's just a product of Donald Trump. But I don't know if Barack Obama could either. Um, so my, I guess my question is, how does that industrialization process that move towards mecha- I mean, mechanized practices and, and and assessments within the industry and within a more industrialized force? mean that we somehow lose all of our um, interests in, in the arts and cultural and literature and movies? Where is it a zero-sum game? Because and what's the, what's we the reason? have, we're drowning in, in information and we're starving uh, for knowledge, um, essentially. Um, and that's the problem. And it is part of the mechanization process. The internet is a great, just a great case study in sort, sort of this. You used to have gatekeepers of information. Most of human societies could not read. Yeah. So basically the elites decided, oh, well, no, these ideas are going to get out. These, um, these ideas won't get out. Once you get the printing press and you get the spread of mass literacy, all those defenses go down. And then eventually once the media is like, you know, it's consolidated, taken over. But basically once you have the ability for people, for now today anyone can have their own platform basically in the palm of their hands. You can put out some much information like us like us like what exactly what we're doing right now i we cannot communicate to an audience like this a hundred years ago i mean let let alone 300 so you've basically made it impossible to control the body of knowledge that the populace is going to have so while they're going to have a lot of it and more than they've ever had you have no idea what they're actually picking and you can't guarantee the quality anymore a lot of quantity Big, big drop in quality, but also. Um, so you think people are, are using bad, qual- qual- bad quality uh, information, or they just aren't looking at information. Bad at all? quality information. Okay. People have a lot of information, but a lot, a lot of it's bad quality. But I'll also get to another reason for specific, two reasons for um, um, for the cause that you mentioned. So um, before the internet, before TV, before phones, dead ass, the only entertainment people had was physical recreation and reading shit. So you literally had no other option. Reading shit, just shit. It's, 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 okay. just reading. <laughs> or or, or like even reading the newspaper and stuff like this goes into the whole spread of mass literacy thing. So even for the, the people who could read, they were much more well-read, or at least even if they weren't reading like, you know, the great classic works of literature, they knew, they understood the, their native language Penny much Dreadfuls. better than people. Yeah. yeah, they understood their own native language. Charles Dickens, these writers got started by writing serial columns in the newspaper. Enough people were interested in and could understand and appreciate it. The writings of Charles Dickens is now considered a classic writer in our modern sense. You know, he's a canonical. They were just reading that. Jason for their hates own, Dickens. I mean, I mean, for, for, for their own recreation. So um, I think the ways in which, uh, again, all of those ways in which technology has sort of changed the way even we entertain ourselves, that we're basically amusing ourselves to death and we're starving for actual information. That's another um, reason why what's happening is happening. And the last one I'll mention is... Um, once you get the rise of the meritocracy as opposed to the aristocracy, the aristocracy, as you know, and it, it's like the John Adams quote, like, you know, you can do like, fine if you can do like arts and poetry or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm a study war, war and politics, so my uh, so son can study mathematics and philosophy. Exactly. Like like that. So America's always had, we've always known that's where our, our country was sort of going in that respect. So now we can't really demand of our elites that they have a particular, they come in with a particular body of knowledge. You've read Shakespeare, you've read Cicero, you've read Chaucer, you know, these are all just cultural illusions we can make and I understand you get it now the only thing is proving you have aptitude whatever that means endless potential 
potential that a bunch of problems can be thrown at you. You can figure out how to solve them in some ingenious, clever little trick. That's what consulting is, by the way. We finally got um, to the definition of that. Reading Cicerone aptitude. All right, there. Exactly. Well, basically, but basically, you can just handle anything. You don't need to do know anything in particular. Just be able to handle a wide variety of problems. So that makes you a renaissance man. Then. Exactly. It's a different type of renaissance man. You're basically... It's an industrial uh, renaissance Yeah, man. You're, indu- you're an industrial renaissance man, which basically is a human... Weber nice. and but Taylor's favorite type. But of I, think, I, think, I think that gets to a deeper point about uh, education, higher education specifically. I think you have in the United States this like this idealization of the liberal arts college, and I think I think I think I, I agree. I think I I've loved my liberal arts experience. I've, I think I think it, there's certainly value to that uh, at, at higher levels, but I think. Uh, when you're talking about education policy more broadly, I think there's a difference between an art history degree from the University of Harvard. I think there's versus you know a full a, a degree in philosophy from South Southwest Saskatchewan, SUNY Buffalo, which is yeah. really uh, South Southwest <laughs> College is one of the best uh, that there is. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so you know you know you know well, well, well because at, at the risk it, of us sounding like a total no 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 but no, but, no, but, 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 but it goes back wait, to what South I was saying Southwest before because we're not being <laughs> trained we're not being trained for content we were right. picked because of aptitude you guys didn't do anything in particular you guys we just know you're capable of doing a lot of things which is why I can study history and then go do management consulting for large corporations it's like how at all did my college degree prepare me for that not at all they just know well if you can handle like you know a high workload you're fairly disciplined you're good at time management you're smart and you're resourceful we can use you for anything yeah and I think I think but but I think that sure you can study history at, at Harvard and then go go get a very high paying job but I think when you're looking at South Southwest Saskatchewan University you're you're dropping forty thousand dollars you're dropping thirty thousand dollars a year for for a history degree that you won't use that can't that use. can't literally cannot use uh, and you're gonna get and you're piling on that a ridiculous amount of debt for yourself uh, without really seeing much return on that investment and I think when you're looking at and I think that that has to do with the stigma I think you know there's you know too many too many generals in the army too many cooks in the kitchen whatever whatever metaphor you want to use there. <laughs> Uh, you have you have that labor mismatch now, uh, and I think partly because this this stigmatization that oh if you don't go into a four year liberal arts college you're not as smart as as someone who is, and I, I think that's absolutely not true. And I think I think you have to you have to create a system and start creating a system to to meet that those labor mismatches, starting by addressing that societal stigma around oh you like having a society that understands that you know. Trade schools, vocational schools are just as important, just as like the. But how do you make those trades? And it doesn't. In the it age doesn't of increasing automation and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. Well, I think there there is increasing automation, but there, that we're, that doesn't where, where, mean where blue collar job. jobs are becoming less relevant and less. There, it's not that it's it's not that they're going to go away. It's that they're changing. There are much fewer of them. I would say it's not just increase in automation, though. It's also an increase in hope and opportunity. I mean, a hundred years ago, I don't think a single one of us in this room could have been able to go to Harvard for a variety of reasons, whether mm-hmm. they be uh, where you're from, how much money you have, which race you are. Um, and, and I think it's important to know the hundred years now, anybody can go to Harvard. I, 
I don't believe that there's a single person in this world that can't go to Harvard if you know they have a little bit of luck and put their minds to it. So everybody feels like they can become a professor of Harvard, a CEO of Goldman Sachs, except there's not that many jobs for all these people. And so, you know, it, it's hard to tell somebody, you know, maybe you shouldn't look at liberal arts, maybe you shouldn't become the actor or become the banker you want to be and maybe go to a trade school. We have such high expectations because there's so many opportunities for people that now when there's a mismatch and not enough spots for too many people, how do you tell them maybe this is another option? So I think, yes, it's increasing automation. Jobs are changing. Of course, we can adapt to the newer jobs, but at the same time, it's also uh, people who you know have a high dream but may have to settle just because there's so many people up on top. And how do you convince so, that to them? So, so, I, so I, 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 I can I can talk as someone who has had a little bit of background in education. Um, so as Jason, you found out the other day. So I spent a good bit of time in high school in FBLA, mm-hmm. uh, Future Business Leaders of America. It's a, a student organization across the U.S. Uh, that. Uh, as one of its aims, so we, we try to teach students about careers in business. And one of the things that I did as the national president of that organization uh, was that I Congratulations. tried... Thank you. I, I tried to <laughs> influence... humble brag. <laughs> uh, I, I, along with the other national officers at the time, and so our organization sends our officers to D.C. several times a year, every year, uh, and we send uh, our... also possibly even more important, we send our state officers and other representatives from the organization to our state legislatures every year, several times a year, to try to teach legislature legislators about the value that they get out of career and technical education. Mm. And one of the things that we try to do uh, is, is try to increase the amount of funding that goes to in-school and after-school programs in career and technical education. And for, for those of you who might not know, career and technical education is basically uh, education for uh, the, the vocational education, uh, training for careers that might not require uh, a four-year degree to accomplish, uh, that actually yield high-paying jobs. The problem uh, is they and, won't be high-paying once everyone goes well, into it. As, as, as we okay, realize with the busted coding... You, and engineering, it was high paying until everyone started doing it. And now that most no, of the but it's it not. It's not job. everyone's going to do it, right? That's that's the important. It's going to become part. the best option as blue collar jobs are squeezed further and further. Once it's like okay, now I have my pay's been cut in half. I have no benefits, and they don't really do pensions anymore. It's all these. Okay, but, but to the point I wanted to make, because that wasn't They're just gonna be me, like I'd rather make eighty thousand. That, that wasn't that wasn't me just self-aggrandizing. Like I want, I, there's a point I want to make. That, really, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> really believe it or not, like it. no. But the the, the point that congratulations I again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Nick. No, the the point I want to make. The college isn't for everybody. What I've always found, what I love about the college isn't for everybody. Was that not what you were saying? No, no, no. Well, it it's college isn't for everybody, but also that right now the way that we teach career and technical education in the U.S. turns people off from that. Like there are students, we, we don't mm-hmm. we don't pick students based on aptitude for those jobs at mm-hmm. all, at all. Mm-hmm. And I think I think, but even w- there are examples. I don't know how you create a society that respects and uh, kind of gets away from the stigma that we have now. But you look at Germany, for example. Uh, you know, someone going to a trade school, someone going to a vocational school is just as respected as anyone going to a liberal mm-hmm. liberal arts school. And I think that that's something to strive for. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of people, I think, well, why go through $100,000 in debt to get an art history degree that you'll never use uh, just because, what, you're, like, someone will respect you more for it than if you're going to a trade school, vocational school, and why should they respect you more? Yeah, making eighty to $100,000 like, a year. I don't want to nitpick that example, but I think people already do understand that point. I mean, to go back to the example of, like, your mom and Sarah, like, they're not, they're not 
they don't have to be the most sophisticated, you know, mother-daughter duo like trying to, you know, game the American job system, but they, it's trickled down to me and they're like, okay, you shouldn't go to college if you don't plan on doing something that will actually give you mm-hmm. hard skills that you can make an income by. So it, it goes back to what I think is the more fundamental problem where it's like, I don't, it's a, they're an easy group to target. Like the people who go to get, you know, these useless humanities degrees at schools who, that which aren't that which aren't as reputable as they need to be for that to be a viable um, career option. But I feel like the, the large problem is, is that there are just sort of, as you said, and sort of what you hinted at, you know, whether it's too many cooks in the kitchen, mm-hmm. there's just too few things. I said, I, it's even crazy here. Yeah. You'd be amazed how hard it is for Harvard. There was the cream of the crop. Isn't that you watch people go through recruiting, you'll be amazed how hard it is for Harvard kids to get yeah. the types of jobs a we all of my think life we're promised or we all think that we're <laughs> deserved. It's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. So if it's this hard at the very top, I mean, it's not going to be much easier, especially as the economy is not just, it's, it's not just like this current state of jobs that it's increasingly going down that direction more every day and putting more and more pressure on the people who don't have access to the types of opportunities they would need to be and here's the thing. It's not just about them being successful per se. They need the standard of life that they were promised back in the 1950s. They said, what? Mom doesn't have to work. We can, You can raise three kids, buy a house, send your kids to college, buy a car on a single father's income. The family's taken care of. The employer pays for our insurance. They pay for our pension. You know, even if dad dies, Social Security will come in and we'll be covered there and we won't lose our standard of living. That shit doesn't exist for most Americans today. Yeah. And, and, they yeah. were, and they know that's what they were promised. That's what they're trying to get get to, and they see that every day is becoming harder and harder and harder. Jason, do you yeah. think the American dream is dead? I was gonna say, yeah, it's it's. And I'll just add, it's just it's not even the American dream anymore. It's now become an increasing American horror story, for lack of a better TV term. And I think it, it's important to note, and a great book to read on this is the Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. I know oh, it's yeah, been hashed yeah. out a lot, but it is talking about you know white America, rural America that had this great promise in the '70s and '80s, and saw their grandparents or great grandparents come back after winning in, in the World War II and defeating the Nazis and then building this American economy, and now they're seeing their jobs kind of evaporate, slip away as the opioid crisis rises. This is the rise. first generation who's, yeah. um, who they'll make less than its yeah. parents did. But I would add, though, there's an interesting article I remember reading uh, two years ago in the New York Times I'd refer to. It's called Economy Needs Workers But Drug Tests Take a Toll. And there's uh, talking about how there's a huge manufacturing unemployment glut in the Middle, uh, Middle East, in the Midwest. Uh, but at the same time, the reason why unemployment is so large is because many of the workers can't pass drug tests. Uh, or, or, and so, you know, dr- drug use is so high or so rampant that people who could have good paying manufacturing jobs, because they're still good paying now, you know, building big pipes or, or steam trips or whatnot, are not getting the jobs or aren't sustaining their jobs because drug use is so high. So the jobs and the options are there. It's just getting people to begin to validate themselves that work and also finding a potential opportunity other than going to a liberal arts school and studying folklore and mythology or something. Mm-hmm. It's incentivizing and not de-stigmatizing you know, it's, it's not, it's trade schools and, and, and non-liberal arts yeah. Um, degrees, you know, being a nurse is, is better than being a, a lawyer per se, and also incentivizing them to recognize the value in this work for both Absolutely. themselves and the nation. Absolutely. Also, I do believe the American dream is still alive. That's good. More so in China than in America, but the American. So dream. the American dream is in China. The American dream is in China. I mean, yeah, the idea is like, oh yes, we're all going to be, we're all in this inexorable wave to prosperity, and it's not just like it's not just like the government, their intellectuals telling them that. People feel it. They feel like you know we're being, we're finally part of something big again. If you talk to Chinese people over there, like, why is enemy. that? Why do they feel part of something? Oh, because their country's on the rise and they know it. What is the American dream to yeah. you, fundamentally? It's the, it's the promise of self-improvement. Wait, so how can we be in the dream if, if you suggest that America is not rising? 
Hmm? How can we still be following the American dream and believing it I'm if America's not we're rising? still rising, but the mm. rate of the rise is getting Slowing. slower and slower okay. every year until it first plateaus, which is what I think we're approaching, and then starts to decline. So this this promise of self improvement does that have to is that inextricably tied or self advancement from, from the, the country of rising? Huh? Is it is it inextricably tied to the country rising? Yes, can we, you have the American dream in pockets? No, and we've and we've and we've, and we've never really or we've never really experienced it. Like its, it's power has never been imagined in pockets. Because if the reality is not according to the rhetoric to, to a sufficient degree, people just won't believe the rhetoric. It was easy back in the day. That's why the government was handing out free land every 50 years in American history. Cities get too crowded. Even Thomas Jefferson, even as, yeah, as early Jefferson, he thought, oh, yeah, the West has the potential to be like the safety valve go of West American Japan. democracy. Yeah. Like, just yeah. go West, expand. Like, that's like the frontier hypothesis. That's, uh, that's um, really popular in the history discipline. I think it was um, Eric Foner that, that, that mm-hmm. came up with that idea. Um, and I think there's, I think there's a very big appeal to it. And then even when um, the cities, when the industrial revolution came to town, people could move to the cities and start creating jobs. And then after the war, you get the rise of the American middle class. Then you get the glut of the '70s, where shit started looking bad. And but then you get like Reagan and boom times. Yeah. And then you get the dot com thing. And we had all thought we were on this, you know, inexorable rise to glory. And I think the event more than any thing else that stripped that veneer away was the financial crisis. Yeah. I Where think that, next, yeah. that that was one that was one of the you know shots heard around the world. I think these in the story there I, there are a couple of moments you can think are important. I think um financial you can trace a direct line from like, the financial crisis to the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. I, don't and really I think it's a question that, that Reagan way. asked in the 1980 election which is are you better off than you were four years ago? And and, and uh, we were doing some impersonations a few, a few weeks ago. But it is a question of, you know, in a four-year span, were you better off? And I think each election cycle, you can say Americans were better off than they were, with the exception of 1928, 1932, uh, and in 2008 to 2012, I think Americans were somewhat stagnant. Uh, but we're seeing that more, 2012 to 2016. I don't know if things were getting better. So to Jason's point, I think not only are wages, uh, you know, declining in terms of their growth, but at the same time, I, I, there's a, a Center for American progress report a few years ago that said Americans are, I think, twice as productive as they were in the 1990s, but wages are only matching that by, I think, 1.5 times. Mm -hmm. So Americans are working harder now more than ever before to keep their jobs and put food on the the table, having more jobs, working jobs longer, but at the same time, wage growth, even accounting for inflation, is not matching. uh, And so how can Americans believe that they're somehow being part of a better dream when they're working harder than ever before, which is the American dream, and not seeing anything from it? Do you think Vietnam and America's response to, 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 to the war and to the veterans coming home, do you think that started to take a toll on the American dream, or was it yeah, after yeah, that? Yeah, I have a good quote that's actually... Yeah, so I think, are you saying kind of the cynicism from Watergate, Vietnam, everything kind of ruined the American dream? Right. Y- you know, I think... It, there, do, you there, think it was, <clears throat> do you think the financial crisis was more of a hit to it? I think... Yeah, I think the financial crisis is more of a hit, and here's why. Um, because the American dream is both economic and political, right? It's that, yes, we're going to be better off than we were four years ago, both as a nation and as a people, but it's also politically we have faith in our government that our nation is the best nation in the world. I think that's what happened in Vietnam. We left there. We still thought we were number one. Gulf War resuscitated it. Reagan made us optimistic again. We didn't lose as much faith in our country. We lost faith in our leaders. When the economic recession happened and the recovery was so slow and people were so badly hit, and at the same time, Time, we didn't believe that could happen to us, then we started losing faith. Because the, the, the similarity, though, between Vietnam and the economic recession is, is this. Uh, we don't believe, we believe we're immune, right? We lost hundreds and thousands of men in World War I and World War II. 
it didn't irritate us as much as losing 54,000 or so men in Vietnam and 4,500 men in Iraq. Those deaths were far more important uh, to us morally and also spiritually than numerically. And the same thing in the economic recession. I think we took that as a hard hit in the Depression because we, we assume that we're America, we're exceptional. And so we bought into the dream so much. We think we're so exceptional that when we lose one uh, soldier abroad or when we lose one dollar in the market, we go into flight mode because we believe we're the best. And I think as we see our, our gradual decline as any industrialized power would, we're becoming frantic and we're, and we're somewhat losing uh, our, our minds over that because how could we lose so much when we're so great? So we hit the mountaintop and as we're sliding down, we realize, you know, w- w- why are we going so fast? Where are we going and, and why are we slipping? Well, I actually think, because I, I, I do want to push back on that point a little bit, but I also want I, but I also want to get back to the point you were making about meritocracy earlier, because I think that there is something deeper here, like the idea of the American dream. Because I was reading this um, great BuzzFeed article about how millennials became the um, burnout generation, and they were talking about basically not just the effects of, like, one aspect of that is like not just the effects of student loans, but the psychological, what that does to a person's psyche. And it said, like, when we talk about millennial student debt, we're not just talking about the payments that keep millennials from participating in American institutions, like homeownership or purchasing diamonds. It's all about the psychological toll of realizing that something you've been told and came to believe yourself would be, quote, quote unquote, worth it, worth the loans, worth the labor, worth all the self-optimization isn't. It's that shattering of expectations that I feel like, and that's like the real reckoning that we haven't yet dealt with because I think the age of student loans is going to crash. I think it is a huge bubble, especially once people realize there's no way to fulfill all the promises that were made when people agreed to indebt themselves in the hundreds of thousands to basically pursue a dream. And um, that's what I'm saying. It's shattered expectations. We expect that we're I so mean, exceptional. Well, 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 but, but, but I was going to say about the Vietnam War, the expectation was in shattered wasn't that we were so exceptional. It's that we thought, especially after all the hype we believed in World War II, we thought we could only fight a good war. We thought we would always unequivocally be the good guys in a war. I think once... And we thought we were always going to win a war. I think that's the point. I, I, but but, but I, I think it's a little bit... Not, but not just, it's not just about winning the war. It's also about feeling like you're fighting for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Once we kept seeing how hopeless of a situation Vietnam was, was and we didn't, no one really knew why we were there, we found it harder and harder to justify ourselves. That's and right. The, but but, and, and but the, the losing well, was why we couldn't justify ourselves because we'd won the Vietnam War, we'd have waved the American flag, rallied around, and said, hell yeah, we're Americans. It's because we lost it, despite yes. it being an unjust war. Yes, well, I, well yeah, I, I, I feel like it's a complicated process, but I feel like it's it made us question our, our moral legitimacy, and it made us lose faith in our leaders, because the whole idea is like, oh, this is FDR, you know, the president, you know, he'll never lie to us, they'll always know what they're doing, and I think this is related to the financial crisis, the fact that, wow, the crisis exposed how the so-called quote unquote experts could get it so wrong for mm-hmm. so long it made everyone lose faith. It's yeah. like, well, uh, yeah, here's, I, here's, I guess where we disagree because the Spanish American war was the most probably unjust war America's ever fought in 1898. And at the same the, time we won it and we didn't really care. I think if we'd won the Vietnam war, I mean, remember the 1968, 1969, while we were losing badly, there were still huge segments of Congress under the Stennis committee who were urging for more bombings because mm-hmm. we thought we were such a just war. If we had won, I don't think it would have been a problem. Uh, and just to push back on the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt thing. I mean, People knew FDR lied, especially about the Alta Conference, um, and also, but it's, you know, in the new Kennedy lied about Bay of Pigs. We weren't immune to, we were immune to people, and especially our leaders lying, but we thought they did it for a good cause. But now, when you see sort of people have presidential deception and lie, not for matters of war and peace, but for broader matters of just personal gain or Watergate or but Monica Lewinsky, then you have some of the deterioration of American trust. But, but, but you also can't directly compare like injustice to injustice because. America was fine with the Spanish-American War, but 
America was fine with Jim Crow at that time. Everybody yeah, was fine. Yeah, no, with I agree. I, I, I'm I, just I, saying, I, Vietnam, I'm pretty sure if we'd won, we wouldn't have cared I, because at that time in 69. I, I just think that, and I think what we're, another thing that we're seeing is we're seeing the more the moral goalposts shift more and more. I mean, Americans would never have objected like in, in 1898. Like the fact that, oh, we're killing all these innocent natives in a country that's not like. The, I don't think Americans were as sensitive to those types of social issues of justice at that time to be moved by the injustice of do a you, war. But do you well, think that I, there was many people uh, outraged at the Spanish-American War out, uh, atrocities and the Vietnam atrocities? Because I think there were way more people. Out, I I don't I don't know if that's necessarily true. Because I mean, most Americans weren't. I mean, that the, upset. Vietnam, the Vietnam War atrocities. The Vietnam War, in and of itself, destroyed two presidencies. Yeah, but not because of the atrocities. Because we lost so many American lives. So many is in well, too I, many. So I think yeah. I think that I think that raises a question. That so two things I think. First of all, uh, I think to Jason, what you were talking about earlier, that's exactly what, like, behavioral economic studies is these, like, that uh, one of the things, uh, loss aversion, that mm-hmm. when people are in that state where they already, they've convinced themselves that they have something, people are much more averse to losses than they are to, to gains. And so uh, exactly as you mentioned, people, when, once you're in that state, losing something and taking something away from you is far more painful uh, and I think that that brings me to the second point is that I think we've gotten to a point where it's much easier to complain. And I think to, to Nick's point earlier about once you're at the top, it's much easier to find things to complain about. I think First world problems. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, exactly. And I think uh, people I think part of that, like just a tangent, part of that is people people who come to the United States. I think appreciate the United States far more than many Americans Absolutely. do. Absolutely, um, immigrants have a respect and love for this country that Americans, would because Americans take it for granted, exactly. would never exactly. understand. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and I think uh, because their parents had it so good, why shouldn't they have exactly. it? Exactly, so exactly. And I think that that kind of plays into the whole. Once you're at number one, you it's easier to complain about things. It's you, you don't look at the cost of like World War One, World War Two. Like the United States did it at at a, at, a, at a significant cost. But I think I don't think like I think there was a, there was a purpose to that cost, right? And I think with with Vietnam, I think that you see that that that's very different, uh, especially even considering how many less lives Iraq. I think was the same thing. Uh, but I think that raises an interesting question: Is well, that Iraq people were mad because they lied about it? That, let, let, let's be clear. Right. And then we lost. Were. But I think once again, if we but had a successful mission the, accomplished, the, the the lying was. That is that right, is the I legacy. Think, of I think I think the lying worse than the quagmire. To that though, yeah. like the the amount of lying that happened in World War One, World War Two. I think like it still happened. Again, I, well, but hold but on. I think, I that, think ma- that brings it to the, yeah. the point where once you're at the top, it's easier to complain about things. It's easier to find things to complain about, which raises an interesting question. Sure, okay. So when a country is like on the rise, like China is now, like the United States was in the early 20th century. Uh, it's easy to like say, okay, th- these are terrible things. These lives lost are terrible. Like these wars are terrible. But but we're doing it to get stronger. We're doing it for the sake of our country. That's fine. But then once you get to that top, is there is it possible to stay there, or is yeah. that 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 yeah, that I, trap I, I think where it's easier to complain about things that make yeah. you more susceptible? To cycles is that possibly why like empires in general throughout history there's have been a, so well, cyclical? I think there, there's there's there, there, there's there, a, there's there, there's one yeah. one one important thing that I want to say here about both Vietnam and Iraq specifically. Yeah. You think is what it, you say is important? Uh, <laughs> which I think is important. <laughs> All right, well we'll we'll be the judges of that. <laughs> that. It, it, I don't think it was like it, it, sure. It also it had to do with you know the U.S. rising and us expecting to win and have an easy war, uh, but. It was also the fact that the media was actually covering that much more in depth mm. than we'd seen before. We Television had televised broadcast, everything. televised broadcast of the Vietnam War, televised broadcast of the Iraq War, 
right? Where you had journalists embedded with your troops going in and seeing the combat, seeing what our troops are doing, seeing how our troops were dying. That impact themselves the, the, the dying. Entire, it, themselves dying. That is something that the nation hadn't experienced before. And I think that, that uh, I mean, no, that's not something extent, that we experienced before. I agree, before. but I think you you had photographs of yeah. the Civil War. You World had War a significant documentation of what was happening in World War II, especially with newsreels, and people exactly. were going to see every day. Yeah, so yeah. I I don't I don't think that phenomenal. I mean, I, absolutely, the live recovering, the like the the live footage. I think that that's different. But I think fundamentally, as in terms of appealing to the country, I don't know if it was yeah. that drastic of a shift to explain the how drastic of a shift public perception of that we were yeah. talking about earlier. And, 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 and they're not they're not they're definitely not I'm I'm not making the point that that's the only reason. Right, right, right. right. They, they, it's it's a it's a factor that works in tandem with all the other things that we've discussed. Yeah. But it is a very important one to consider. And I think that as we get more media coverage of these things and as media coverage becomes more decentralized, you know, you, you can't control how you're working. You'll see more and, and I think to Lucas's point, which is a fantastic point of, of empires, it, it's Roman hubris, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. this excessive self-confidence that once we've hit the peak, and I think it's 1945, we win the yeah. war, we're number one economy, number one foreign policy, superpower, and we say to ourselves, okay, we're on top uh, across the board, so we believe in economic hegemony, we believe in the trust and moral leadership of our leaders because they're so damn awesome, and we believe that we are the superpower. Mm-hmm. And so once you see all those flashpoints, so it's not just Vietnam or uh, the fiscal crisis, I think it's yeah. both. You see us lose yeah. the Vietnam War. And, and why was the Gulf War so good? And I was pulling up an HW quote here. He says, one of the good things about the way the Gulf War ended in 1991 is you'd see the Vietnam veterans marching with the Gulf War veterans. The first Gulf War was a vindication of how bad the Vietnam War was, and, and it bolstered our moral strength a little bit. But once yeah. again, after you have the moral leadership to Kang with Clinton, uh, with Trump, with, with you know, potential presidential deception, and then an economic recession, we think to ourselves, okay, we're losing on all three fronts when we always thought we were the best. How do you reckon with that? Immigrants come to this country and they think, wow, this is so great because in my country we have X, Y, and Z problem. Americans like myself who you know flew over, the, the flew over, Jesus, who came over in the Mayflower, yeah, American Airlines was flying from uh, uh, England to Plymouth, uh, who came over in the Mayflower said, you know, wow, this has been so much better. My grandparents fought in the war and had great economic gain and they could buy a house. Now if I try to buy a house... Uh, in Cambridge, it'd be impossible. In Bangor, maybe, but it'd be tight. So you have these changing factors, which Americans who were here are trying to recognize why they have such little money and why America's declining when they used to know it was once better for their parents and their grandparents before them. Or at least they think so, because to Lucas's point, you know, we're number one, so we complain about more issues. Yep. Well, but I, but I think there was like a nice, uh, nice quote that I saw one time. Yeah, there was a nice quote that I saw one time where it was talking about how it said, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, you know, and then weak men create hard times. And then it's basically a cycle that sort of goes so on and so forth. So I feel like, yeah, I look at just a cycle of civilizations and that's why nothing ends up staying at the top because the goals and uh, honestly, the positive attributes of the founders don't necessarily get passed down for generations. I agree. I think 